Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Colleges and universities have long been spaces of protest. Throughout history, students have exercised their freedoms of expression by speaking out and demonstrating against everything from segregation to war. Consider, for example, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. It was fueled in part by young college students from across the U.S. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, was founded in the wake of student-led sit-ins over segregated lunch counters. Students were also critical in protest against the Vietnam War. And in response to those anti-war protests, the University of Chicago formed a committee that was led by faculty law professor Harry Calvin Jr. That committee created guidelines on the university's role in political and social action. It's known as the Calvin Report. It says that universities should remain neutral in actions to maintain academic freedom. Welcome to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're looking at the First Amendment and its relevance for colleges and universities. Right now, a number of college campuses are in the spotlight as students continue to protest in the wake of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. There have been allegations of speech at protest that is anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, and anti-Palestinian. And that's left many people wondering how to address harmful speech without curbing free expression. 93% of Americans believe that the First Amendment is vital to our country, yet many are unaware of the complexities surrounding those freedoms. That's according to the Freedom Forum, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization located in Washington, D.C. Here to help us understand those complexities is Kevin Goldberg. He's the Freedom Forum's First Amendment specialist. Kevin, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the mission of the Freedom Forum. And so share with our listeners what that mission is and how you as the First Amendment specialist help carry it out. Well, our mission is to foster First Amendment freedoms for all Americans. We envision America where everybody knows, values, and defends the First Amendment. And there's a lot of work to be done, even on the no part. Our surveying, uh, we do something called the Where America Stands survey every year, where we ask Americans what they know and what they think about the First Amendment. And it definitely demonstrates that there's a lot of work to be done on the knowledge side. While people believe in the First Amendment, while they tend to value it, their knowledge of how it works in actuality in their everyday lives is lacking. Most Americans, 90%, in fact, cannot name all five freedoms of the First Amendment, and only 80% can even name one of them. So let's talk about that. You know, I am a political scientist by training. I often teach the Intro to American Politics course. And when I ask people what they know about the Constitution, nearly everyone says the First Amendment. The First Amendment is key. But then when I ask students, well, what does that really 
mean? You know, what are those fundamental freedoms connected to the First Amendment? As you said, people often go to freedom of speech and there's some misunderstandings about that, but they don't identify those other forms embedded in the First Amendment. Share with our listeners those other categories or types of freedoms that the First Amendment contains. Man, I thought I was going to get to test you on this, but I'll go ahead. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. It's religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition in that order. And I like to think of them and remember them, easy way to remember them, is that they actually work sort of inside out. Religion is your innermost beliefs or lack of religious belief altogether, which is protected as well. Then you articulate that in your speech. You talk to other people and maybe through the press amplify that. And then when you find some like-minded people, you gather together with them in assembly and you take your like-minded beliefs to the government asking for change. That's the right of petition. When we think about those those freedoms and how interconnected they are and how really, Kevin, they are at the bedrock of what we think about having a democratic society. And at the same time, we've seen a number of policies, laws, legislative attempts to regulate those freedoms, whether it mm-hmm. is attempts to regulate assembly in the aftermath of the uprisings in 2020, some would say infringements on that freedom of and freedom from religion in particular areas, or real misunderstanding of what freedom of speech means. It also means that we have to reclaim civic education in some ways. What are some of the categories of expression that are not protected by the First Amendment? That's a great question. Obviously, the First Amendment protects us from the government infringement on these rights. Private businesses, they can tell me to stop talking, to get out because they don't like what I say, what I believe. Uh, They can't discriminate on the basis of my religion, but if I articulate things they don't want to hear, yeah, I can can be asked to leave. Uh, So again, we, we have to remember that this protects us against government intrusions. And, but it's not, it's not absolute. And there are some areas, some exceptions to the First Amendment that exist. They're narrowly defined, but they include things like blackmailing someone, perjuring yourself in court, defaming someone, which again, has a very narrow definition. It's it's not just, I said something about you that hurts your feelings. It is literally a materially and substantially false assertion of fact about you that harms your reputation that was published with a level of fault and causes actual damage. Not expecting you to remember that, but it's a demonstration of how we, we really define these things narrowly to allow all other speech to occur. Some other areas are obscenity, again, has a very narrow definition beyond just what people think is obscenity. You know, the, the natural default is, oh, that's pornographic, it's obscene. Not true, it's a much narrower uh, class of speech. And finally, three areas that have been in the news a lot, fighting words, which is where I say something to you designed to provoke an immediate violent response, true threats, where I say something to you that is intended to put you in fear for your own safety, and incitement to imminent lawless violence, which is designed to whip up a crowd into immediately doing something illegal. Uh, and so those are, those are, again, some of the classes of speech that are not protected by the First Amendment. The common threat is that they all are going to inflict some direct harm on someone or a small group of people that could be avoided. But again, they're very narrow and they're intended to allow all other speech to have the breathing space to survive. What I hear from you, Kevin, is that these freedoms are not absolute. 
that they are nuanced, they're contextual. It's often who is in the position to determine or define what that means. And for many Americans, that may be unsatisfying. We like to think that the Constitution is sacrosanct as long as we are the person benefiting from it or we are getting our way. How does social media play into this? Because when you talked about those examples of things that are not protected, I kept thinking about the doxing that happens via social media or, you know, go on Facebook and someone says, well, you can't tell me not to say that I have freedom of speech, which is different, as you said, from government intervention. How is social media complicating how we think about the First Amendment? You know, social media should be viewed both Uh, in the context of the First Amendment as something that is new but shouldn't be treated any differently overall. I mean, we've had the First Amendment in this country for 230 years. We've seen so many changes to media in that time period. Obviously, there were newspapers and and printed media around at that time, but then you had the mails that, that really expanded the reach of anybody's publications, and then radio and television and the internet, and within the internet, social media. The same First Amendment framework has applied the entire time and I think should continue to apply. We just sort of have to be sensitive to the harms that that might be uh, inflicted on people through speech and sort of tweak accordingly. So social media presents a very direct way of communicating with people and an easy way to amplify, especially falsehoods and offensive or outright racist or hateful speech. So we have to be aware of that, but we shouldn't make bold pronouncements to try to shut this media down. So it presents a challenge, but not one we are that the First Amendment isn't pre- uh, ready to handle. For me, the beauty of the Constitution is that it is a living, breathing document that is subject to interpretation, which, as we know, has created challenges throughout American history, mm-hmm. but also gives us a framework for thinking about where we are today, how we got here, and where we want to go in the future. One of the places that we see these battles playing out are on college campuses across the U.S. And as someone who spends every day on a college campus, I'm acutely aware of how our misunderstandings about the First Amendment, about connection in a democratic society are playing out. And that is most obvious in some of the debates that are happening following um, the start of the Israel-Hamas war back in October. When you think about that context of what's happening, what are some of the forms of protections that we need to think about on college campuses? Not just the things that we like or don't like, but those forms of expressions that we need to pay attention to as being protected. Well, of course, this has put the, the, the conflict you're talking about has put the First Amendment at the forefront of conversation on college campuses, both in terms of, you know, what's happening on the campuses and the greater discussion around it. We, we saw that three university presidents were asked to testify in Congress on October 7th and criticized roundly for what they said that the First Amendment um, requires context in terms of when you were going to limit somebody's speech. And as a matter of law, they were 100% accurate. The First Amendment does require context, and that is, I think, the most important thing to understand. Now, where they, I think, fell short in their testimony was not recognizing their context, that they weren't in court, that they weren't talking necessarily about the law, that they had to recognize there is a lot 
of public opinion around what they were saying and they were going to be scrutinized. But as a matter of law, yes, the First Amendment requires context. The First Amendment requires a, a breadth of speech. It requires that we endure uncomfortable speech and we have to be receptive to it for two reasons. Number one, it may just change our minds about things, allowing everybody to speak in this grand marketplace of ideas. And that's how I view college campuses as a true marketplace of ideas where everybody, you know, especially in college, should be exposed to new things that we haven't, haven't heard before, haven't absorbed, haven't felt before. And it's uncomfortable, but it's what makes us grow. So this marketplace of ideas serves two purposes. It allows us to test our own thinking and maybe change. And just as importantly, it allows us to test our own thinking and remain the same, reinforce. Both are equally important. Kevin, I'm concerned because the public square is so polluted in many ways. It seems like we can't even have conversations anymore because of these concerns. The ways that many people channel themselves into echo chambers. So you're never encountering differences of opinion or experience or thought. And then when you are engaging, it feels so divisive, which to me is the antithesis of having a democratic society where you can encounter this marketplace of ideas and be able to sift through that. The other layer of it then is this divide between public and private institutions. And again, I'm speaking here of colleges and universities, but that public-private divide plays out in many other arenas of public life. How does that divide fit into the work that you're doing around the First Amendment? Well, obviously on a private campus, the First Amendment won't apply. The First Amendment, of, as we've said already, limits the government's ability to intrude on your rights, not private businesses. So a private university should be viewed as a private business. It can set its own rules unless it has explicitly under state law, under state laws that explicitly required to conform to the First Amendment or by its own rules, its own internal rules charter says we will uh, apply the First Amendment on our campus. In those instances, yeah, we will just apply First Amendment principles and law. But you make a, a really interesting point about the divisiveness. And it is something that's worrisome to me. I don't want to fall into the same area arena as the, the unit, three university presidents from Penn from UPenn, Harvard, and MIT, and minimize the need to be aware of the harm speech can inflict on others. I just want to make sure that we, we provide, again, that breathing space for it to occur, because the danger of shutting down the speech is multifaceted. If, in, if we are too quick to silence people because we perceive that what they're saying is harmful to others, then number one, we leave them no alternative to vent themselves. And we actually perhaps invite violence on campus instead by bad actors. This has been proven in some other countries, Western European democracies like France and Germany that do have laws prohibiting hate speech actually have higher incidence of racial violence than the United States does. Now that gap is I think narrow, it has narrowed over the last 10 years, but I think I like to say that the, the First Amendment is a valve on the pressure cooker of society. People speak rather than act in violent ways. Number two, I think it's important again to remind ourselves that we are, we are using it to not only change people's minds or change our own minds, but perhaps to reinforce, and that's okay. Number three, 
if we don't allow this marketplace of ideas to flourish and allow ourselves to sort it out, if we say it's too divisive, someone's got to step in and and shut down the dangerous speech, well, who's going to do that? The government. I don't trust the government to pick sides in these debates. Frankly, when the government picks sides in these debates, they often pick sides uh, with the powerful. And then the very laws that are used to protect or, or designed to protect minorities, the very goals that we seek to achieve are actually flipped around and used against minority speakers who are advocating for change. And that's a very dangerous proposition as well. So in those ways that by affirming the marketplace of ideas, affirming that freedom of speech, we also affirm the ability of people to respond. And to exactly. 100%. You nailed it. Thank you so much. And I think that's important because it, it then shows that we all have a role to play in this. It is an affirmation of citizenship. And I mean that broadly defined, not just the legal category of citizenship, but broadly defined in terms of being in a participatory society where we can do that, that layer of academic freedom, as well as freedom of speech. As we come to the end of this conversation, there will be people who will listen to this conversation and say, you know, yes, that has me thinking in different ways, or yes, I see how context matters. What would be your takeaway, Kevin, to people who are asking, well, what can we do to either learn more about the First Amendment or engage in protecting that freedom? What would your message be? Use the First Amendment. That would be number one. The First Amendment exists not just to speak, but to, to learn, to acquire information. So take advantage of this wonderful protection we have for books, for television, for documentaries, and yes, for social media. Take advantage of it. Learn. Learn how to be critical, to engage in what we call news literacy or media, media literacy. Understand the difference between a business decision a publication makes and a news decision. Understand the difference between an opinion piece or an entertainment program and a news hard reporting piece. Learn how to differentiate between good sources and bad sources. Be really critical in your thinking, but but you know, just sponge it all up, read it, learn it, listen to it, talk about it, and then you know, go out and defend it. Kevin Goldberg is the First Amendment specialist at the Freedom Forum. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based in Washington, DC. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you. It was so much fun. Coming up. Wesleyan University President Michael Roth and students from across Connecticut share their thoughts on freedom of expression. You're listening to Disrupted. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about freedom of expression on college campuses. Since October 7th, college students across Connecticut have expressed their views on the war through speech and protest. A pro-Palestinian protest that was led by students at Southern Connecticut State University peacefully disrupted an event during Governor Ned Lamont's remarks to local business leaders. And at UConn, there have been peaceful demonstrations supporting both Israel and Palestine. Elle is a student at Yale University, studying ethics, politics, and economics while serving in the military. We asked Elle how she felt that the university is handling the protest. I've actually had friends and have myself attended protests of both sides. I've seen, you know, both sides come to the table with their expressions and do it peacefully. Um, And I think that is largely to thank because of Yale's initiative with diversity and everything they've done to kind of encourage inclusion. AJ is a junior at the University of New Haven studying criminal justice. AJ believes that university leaders should provide support for all students who want to express their views. As a university, it, it is your job to take the part to to support, you know, all students' voices and to make sure voices aren't being silenced and they are being heard. Back in December, members of Congress had a hearing on campus anti-Semitism. It featured remarks from three university presidents, Sally Kornbluth from MIT, Liz McGill from the University of Pennsylvania, and Claudine Gay from Harvard. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. Ms. McGill at Penn. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. And Dr. Gay at Harvard. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. Liz McGill and Claudine Gay face backlash for their remarks. Both have eventually resigned, due in part to that backlash. The firestorm sparked a debate on how lawmakers and university leaders should respond to hate speech at private universities. For more on that question, we're joined by one Connecticut university leader. Michael Roth is president of Wesleyan University. He's the author of Safe Enough Spaces, a pragmatist approach to inclusion, free speech, and political correctness. Michael, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, before we talk about what undoubtedly comes to mind when people think about being a president at this moment in the United States, I want to take a step back and talk about the role. Because most presidents serve less than six years, you have now been at the helm of Wesleyan for nearly 17 years. 
And I'm curious, based on that, what you see as the role of a college president and how it may have changed since when you first started. Well, you know, I I think the role of a college president will vary depending on the school uh, at which they work. So I came to Wesleyan having been a president of an art school in San Francisco and Oakland, the California College of the Arts. And there I was just another guy working in the administration. Uh, You know, I was not, uh, I'm not an artist. And the artists are far more interesting than administrators. And so people looked at the president as somebody who could help get them resources so they could do the cool stuff they wanted to do. And for me, that was a great place to start as president because I do think that's the most important job I have is ultimately to bring different kinds of resources to the school so that creative students and faculty and staff can thrive and can use those resources to learn about themselves and the world. And, you know, at a place like Wesleyan, you know, an old, established, highly selective liberal arts institution, the president has a more symbolic role to play. And certainly um, there is more, there is that, that I take that into account, try to use that for the good of the university. But ultimately, although I teach and I write books and I do radio shows, <laughs> um, I think my most important job is still, like it was back in the Bay Area, to bring resources back to campus so that really creative people on the faculty and among the students and on the staff can use them. And I appreciate you talking about that piece of it, because I think what's happening in the public discourse is that we are collapsing colleges and universities all into one type or into one bucket. And it doesn't account for the tremendous diversity that exists, not just across schools, but often within schools and how that context can really shape what can be done and what must be done. And a piece of that, I think, Michael, is people often assume that private schools have much more leeway and bandwidth. They can just do whatever they want to do and they don't have to be accountable. You and I both work in higher education and know that that's, you know, glossing over it. But how do you feel like private universities are navigating in this moment in the U.S.? Right now, I think there is a tendency among leaders of private institutions, and even more so in public institutions, for presidents to stay out of trouble. (laughs) Um, Having, you know, witnessed the disastrous hearings in Washington and in uh, late in 2023, uh, the many presidents, I think, fear that if they are too public, then they will disappoint someone. And that if they disappoint someone, especially someone with some power, that their institution will suffer and that they themselves will suffer. And I do think this is unfortunate because I do right now, and I, I've written about this, and that that I think we need leaders of academic institutions, of educational institutions to step up and talk about our missions, talk about the importance of education in the United States, how it's unevenly distributed, how how empowering it is when it works well, how you need freedom of expression and and, um, academic freedom to thrive uh, educationally, 
And we need presidents to stand for these things in the public sphere because there's so much political um, nonsense out there aimed at undermining the uh, trust people have had in higher education. So I, I've, 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 I've written that, you know, you don't need to encourage presidents to be cowards. I mean, there's a kind of occupational uh, reserve that has <laughs> a long been part of the college presidency. Uh, but I think right now we we need people to have the courage to stand up for what they know is necessary for their educational mission, especially when it's threatened by politicians or by donors or by parents. And to stand up for that, knowing you won't please everybody and that you might, you know, you might have an argument and perhaps the president will find out that he or she is wrong. And, you know, just that's fine. That's a good model, actually, for the rest of the campus that presidents can learn, just like students and faculty. That erosion of the public trust, that heightened sense of fear and vulnerability, as well as the fundamental truth that to be a leader means inherently you will disappoint someone. There will be people who think you're doing too much too fast. There will be people who think you're not doing enough soon enough. And if that is the guy by which you lead, then it's almost destined to fail. And then the other reality is that many people watched those hearings, those congressional hearings on December 5th, where three university presidents were asked about growing anti-Semitism on their campuses, how they would respond. And people saw that very visible hearing as, that's why I shouldn't say anything, or that's why the role of a president is to be neutral in all situations. And I want to ask you, Michael, is that realistic to expect a university president, a leader, especially of an institution built on academic freedom, is it realistic to expect people to just be neutral and not take a position? Well, I fear it, it is realistic, but it's wrong. In other words, I think a lot of people, a lot of people in these jobs, you know, they're high paying jobs that are fraught. You know, so nobody should cry in their beer about the presidents because, you know, we're we're paid a lot more than academic uh, uh, academics on the campus, as you know. And so, you know, it's a it's a great job. It's it's I think if right kind of person. It's a lot of fun, actually. Um, but but I, I think that a lot of people will try to protect their job and their institution uh, by. Uh, tr- uh, trying to appear neutral, but you can't be neutral in the face of authoritarianism. You can't be neutral about creeping fascism. You can't be neutral about the erosion of academic freedom. And so, and we can't be ne- neutral about the need to reinvigorate our democracy, in my view. Um, and I, I and people have said I'm not realistic because you people will be neutral, <laughs> you know. And and this this uh, the Kelvin report everybody talks about from 1967. I mean, I, I, as I look back at that, that was a moment when campuses were agitating to end the war in Vietnam. They were agitating on behalf of civil rights, and of course, these good old guys at the University of Chicago say this: we should be neutral because, in fact, the campuses wanted to step in to the public sphere on behalf of causes that were vital to them and I think to their institutions. Um, and so I, I, I think the, um, uh, the, it's the moral obligation of a leader 
to take stands on behalf of the mission of the organization which they lead. And that sometimes means saying things in the public sphere that many people will disagree with. But that's why you're the president. <laughs> you're, you're kind of protected. I mean, almost all of us have some kind of tenure. I mean, I just know if they don't. And I was with a group of presidents and they said, it's really hard, really hard to do that, especially public institutions. And I said, and at that time, it was a year ago, I think I said, how many presidents have been fired for taking a moral stand in the last year? And at that time, it was zero. Now that now they're, you know, the president of New College would fall into that category, um, and there are a few others. Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, you all could also say that the attempt to be neutral at Penn and Harvard backfired because you know, they tried to give this neutral legalistic answer, which backfired. I'm not sure that's the only reason they were fired. I, I don't know enough about the cases, but I, I, I in any case, if you're leading an organization with a clear mission, your moral duty is to defend that. And then as a citizen, I think, because we're, you know, of the United States, we're duty bound to try to get our students to have some trust in the public sphere that in which they'll participate. So I, I really think that uh, we don't need just bureaucrats running colleges and universities, and we don't need um, uh, sycophants, <laughs> people just trying to, you know, suck up to the rich. You 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 do need to raise money, and you do need to uh, talk to lots of people, different points of view, but you can also stand for your institution's values in the face of some of these uh, counter forces right now. You mentioned being a leader and being a citizen. And having that conversation about what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be a global citizen, to be a locally aware citizen, we talk about it a lot for students and, and why we want students to have those experiences. But what I hear from you, Michael, is we also need to think about citizenship for leaders, for academic leaders, for people who are leading in the classroom as faculty, for our students and the communities to which we are connected. I wonder how you see identity playing into that, because we also expect that a leader is supposed to adhere to the institutional values, not considering the layers of their own identity ah. that also affect, right? So the expectation is, if you are a Jewish college president, you're going to take this stand, regardless of your identity, your experience, your background. And that's the piece where I also feel that we negate that there are people in these roles and that we don't assume that just because a person has an identity, that is the, the route that they're supposed to take. How does identity play into leadership, citizenship on our campuses? I, I try to make my identity very clear, you know, that I, I'm a Jewish president. Uh, I use, I'll say the word shtick or I'll use some Yiddish here and there. And um, uh, or that I'm a first generation college student, uh, and um, and and I try to to bring that into the way I talk, and the and how I address particular subjects, but I try to do so in a way that both situates where I'm coming from, but doesn't limit where I'm going. In other words, the fact that I have a certain identity and experience doesn't 
determine exactly how I'm going to come out on issue A or issue B or issue C. I, at least I hope not. I don't believe it does. And I want students who don't share my background, which is most of them, of course, now, you know, um, I want them to feel like I know who he is, but he doesn't, I don't need to be like him to talk with him, to disagree with him, to agree with him. I think when you feel the leader of your institution is faking it, then you're not going to want to participate. I've, I guess, I don't know if it's a decision or just a practice, really, just as as it's evolved. I've, I've decided to, um, to hide less and try to listen more. So in hiding less, I'm more upfront. I joke a lot. I, you know, I, I sprinkle some, some uh, Yiddish in or something. But I also wanted to be clear to, and also give myself the job of listening more to people who don't share my particular perspective or my particular background. And that way, I think people feel respected, even if it, we're not, we don't, we don't have to share the same background to share respect. When we return, Michael Roth talks about providing students with what he calls a safe enough space for civic dialogue. So there has to be enough space for them to tolerate disagreement, but not so much space as they have to put up with harassment and intimidation. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about freedom of expression on college campuses. When the war between Israel and Hamas started, Wesleyan University President Michael Roth shared his views on his personal blog. It's accessible to read via the university's website. I asked him about the responses he received from students, especially from those who didn't agree. So I think there were people... Um, who were grateful that I spoke out quickly um, and that I denounced the, what I described as uh, terrorist attacks on October 7th. And I, with the, the title of the blog was Sickening Violence. It was written really while the events were, I was just learning about the events on, on that day. I, you know, and, and, and I don't like to comment on current events all the time because um, it's, I don't think I have a particularly... Um, in, in, in particular insights to offer, but this seems so egregiously awful that I, I and I looked, I actually looked back at what else I had commented on over the years, and I thought this is the kind of thing I have said something about, but I didn't want to create an expectation that every week I would be commenting on the war uh, or on other things. So, um, so there were um, some, you know, most, and there were a lot of positive comments because. Um, uh, on social media because uh, of the failure of other presidents to speak clearly or forthrightly or quickly about it. So um, I found myself getting praised by people who I don't normally um, uh, get lumped with, I guess. And, and, and then there were others who said, you know, why did you denounce these attacks without denouncing the occupation? And others who said, why did you denounce the attacks, but never say you loved Israel? So I got, you know, very different. 
And I, you know, some presidents say that's why I don't speak. I, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I think it's, I, I, I'm speaking as a person with, on a university platform. Other people have different views. That's to be expected. I reached out to um, uh, some of the uh, Jewish students in the immediate aftermath of October 7th and and I went to a vigil and I, I wrote about that. I think my my, I, my mother had some health issues and I was visiting her and I was, you know, I was trying, sometimes it gets a beat. It's a very personal blog. Other times it's like, yay, the hockey team, you know, it really does vary. And then, um, but then I reached out to the Muslim chaplain and I said, you know, how are things with, with, with you and with your, the students you work with? And he said, well, honestly, we're feeling a little left out of, you know, you're, you've commented on, uh, these awful events, but you, you know, we we a lot of my students, my Muslim students, are feeling like they're maybe targets for Islamophobia or or other kind of just discrimination. And so I wrote an, something about that because I thought that was quite legitimate, you know, and that I had leaned a certain way, um, and I didn't mean for that expression to marginalize these other students. But I could see how they felt it had quite reasonably. So I wrote a piece about Islamophobia. Of course, then some Jewish students wrote me and said, wait a minute, how could you do that? And I, I said, listen, not everybody has to uh, uh, find it perfect. But what I do hope they find, you should be able to thrive at Western. It doesn't mean you have to like the things your fellow students do. You know, I have students say, I don't like seeing from the river to the sea, uh, 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 written on a poster or chanted. I said, yeah, I, I don't I don't like it either, but you don't always, you don't get to choose what, how people speak. You do get to, def if they said, I want to kill you, yes, you get to, you get, I can stop, I can stop that. But, um, what, so I wanted them to feel safe enough. You know, that was the title of that book you referred to in the introduction, Safe, safe Enough Spaces. You know, they're not going to be, feel totally safe. I think I've told them I, I hope it's the safest place in America for them. But it, it should also be a place where there is tension because it's a tense moment. Let's talk about that book, because a number of campuses are talking about sort of revisiting or rediscovering the Chicago principles. And they're talking about uh, diversity of thought and diversity of expression as being a pillar that they should aspire to. And your book talks about the pragmatic approach to this, right? That you will never have a space where everyone feels fully safe or where people never encounter that kind of resistance, but how do we cultivate a space that is safe enough? Given that there are many students who today feel that with doxing and social media access, that there are physical threats to them in a way that perhaps they didn't have to worry about before. What does it mean to cultivate a space that is safe enough on our campuses? The, 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 the challenge in my approach is that there's really no formula to tell you exactly what that means in, uh, universally. I mean, that, that's the pragmatist view, right, is that there really isn't a universal here. There are practices that make more or less sense depending on the situation and that you know the, the more aggressive pragmatist view is those people who think they have universal principles are mistaken and they actually wind up being hypocritical i i do subscribe to that view as a person in the history of philosophy but but as a you know teacher and a and a administrator what it means to me is to um 
have the default position being free speech, uh, free expression, but being sensitive to the ways in which some people could abuse that freedom to harass and intimidate other people. There are colleagues uh, who are consider themselves, I guess, more committed to free speech, <laughs> who think you know they're, they're, that you shouldn't have psychological harm shouldn't count. I, I think that's like going back to the pre-modern pre era or something. If we know psychological harm is real, and the libertarian approach to free speech since you know the last thirty subordinate so years, which I talk about in my my book. Uh, that libertarian approach is not the only approach to free speech. You know, lots of modern countries have a commitment to free speech that's different from the free market view that the Chicago people have kind of foisted on us. But even a free market person, and I believe in the free market, believes, I hope, that there should be some constraints. Now, there are many stories of going overboard, of overprotecting students, because if they can't tolerate disagreement, that means they can't learn. So there has to be enough space for them to tolerate disagreement, but not so much space as they have to put up with harassment and intimidation. And so when someone says, I want to commit genocide, that, that seems pretty obvious that you, that's murder. You, you, I want to kill all those people, whoever they are. I would, I would punish that person, expel them, whatever. Um, but if someone chants a slogan that I might think is threatening physically, but someone else doesn't, then I think we have to tolerate that slogan um, and um, try to understand how to get people more resilient so they can hear things that they disagree with or even are offended by, but um, not have to censor those things. As we come to the close of our conversation, I'm reminded that this book was published in 2019, which predates just slightly by a couple of months all of the campus responses in 2020 to the COVID pandemic and its disparate impact to the uprisings over the murder of George Floyd's and others of people responding in this way of here, we need new programs, we need new initiatives. And we're now in a moment where people, many conservatives are saying that it is those DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion programs and campus commitments that have created the problem. What's your response as a president to this public rancor about DEI? I think it's just a, a, a white backlash, frankly. I mean, I, I think that that uh, there are occasions where, you know, a, a DEI a, a person or any person uh, uh, um, has um, uh, gone too far, acted inappropriately. But my goodness, how many white guys got a pointed to positions because their cousin was a friend of the boss or their, or, I mean, it's just, I, 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 I have a DEI uh, office. They do the Lord's work in my view. They're helping first generation students uh, who don't have the experience in colleges, universities that some of our other students have, help them navigate their way here, help them get them tools for success. Um, when there's when there's something that sounds like anti-Semitism on campus, I talk to my DEI people about it. Um, when there's um, uh, uh, gender-based uh, discrimination, we talk to DEI people, and they're and they're great colleagues. I just hired a new vice president in this area from from South Carolina, and she can't because where she can't do that work anymore. I'm I'm the beneficiary uh, of 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 them being pushed out. I think it's a travesty to blame people who are working for civil rights 
uh, uh, to blame them for the erosion of uh, a trust uh, and and uh, to blame them for polarization. In fact, it's polarization which has made the DEI work even more important as racists feel emboldened to act in public in ways they didn't five years ago. We need people who are able to diffuse those situations and also to call it out when we want to stop racists um, and anti-Semites um, uh, from, um, from doing harm to people. So I, I, I think this is a classic scapegoating thing that white politicians have done is to uh, stoke resentment against civil rights gains by people of color um, and then and, and use this little these three word letters <laughs> DEI as, as a way of, of um, um, targeting the rage that some white people feel about the, the growing inequality in this country, which of course is not benefiting black people, especially it's benefiting white people, but it's stoking white resentment. Um, and this is a way of channeling it uh, to, to go backwards in the world of civil rights. Michael Roth is president of Wesleyan University and author of Safe Enough Spaces, a pragmatist approach to inclusion, free speech, and political correctness. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We leave you now with a statement from one more student. Thomas is a mechanical engineering major at the University of New Haven, and he has this to say about freedom of expression. Any assembly, any freedom is a beautiful thing to be able to exercise, and it is a privilege that not everyone can, and so it shouldn't be taken lightly. If you are going to, do it with purpose, do it with pride, and make sure that you know why you're doing it. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. A special thank you to Yale University student L and University of New Haven students AJ and Thomas for sharing their voices. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to leave us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.